Well, good morning, Cornerstone. Like Jacob said, my name is Matei Kondrishan. I'm here with my wife, Bridget, and our son, Rowan, and our second baby, who is yet to make her appearance. So it's always such a joy to gather with you on a Sunday morning, so thank you for having us back. Uh, Jacob asked me to give a little life update, so my wife and I are in our second year of being part of a church plant in Spokane, Washington. Um, so we're helping with that in a small group, hanging out with youth, um, yeah, just kind of helping and serving and being served by the church. Uh, I took a different job about a year ago that's been a huge blessing for our family, working more normal hours and just being able to spend time with my family, so very thankful for that. If you're ever in Spokane, let us know. We'd love to see you. If you have a Bible with, with you this morning, please turn to Second Peter chapter 1. It's my understanding that Ray Hannah preached on First Peter, so we're just getting a nice survey of the, the Peter, Peter epistles in your Bible. But as you turn there, let me give you a little background about this letter. So Second Peter is the second letter that Peter writes to a network of churches in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. And we learn in Peter's first letter, these churches were experiencing persecution and hostility due to their faith in Jesus. In his first letter, Peter encourages these churches to remain faithful and steadfast, even in the midst of persecution. He emphasizes the importance to live holy lives, even in the face of suffering. And Peter reminds these believers that God's people have always stood out from the rest. They are supposed to be marked by holiness and righteousness because they belong to a different kingdom and they serve a different king. And in, second, in Peter's second letter to these churches, we read that Peter has learned that he's going to die soon. Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, 13-15, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So Peter writes this letter as a farewell address to these churches. And in this letter, Peter writes to encourage the church to remain faithful and to remind them of everything he has taught them so far. So Peter begins his letter in chapter 1 with an exhortation to these believers that they must never stop growing in Christlikeness. And in chapters 2 and 3, Peter issues a number of warnings about false teachers who are going to rise up in the church. And Peter specifically calls out their corrupt way of life and their false doctrines that permit, permit such a way of life. And central to their false teaching is their denial of the return of Christ. They essentially say that if Christ isn't going to return, then it doesn't matter how we live our lives. But Peter refutes this idea and tells his audience that they actually mistake God's patience with God's failure to make good on his promises. In, in 2 Peter 3.9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Peter tells his audience that the reason Christ has not yet returned is that God is patient with sinful men and he desires that they would turn from their sin and repent. You see, God hasn't failed to make good on his promises. And in fact, Peter makes clear that Christ will return one day. And when he comes, he will judge all men. And because of this coming judgment, Peter exhorts these believers to continue striving hard after growth in Christlikeness so that when Christ does return, they can be confident in their faith in Jesus. If we continue growing in Christlikeness, we do not have to fear coming judgment. We read these words in chapter 3, verses 11 through 14. 
since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So Peter begins and ends this letter with an exhortation to these believers that they should strive hard after growth in Christlikeness. And the reason that Peter gives in both his letters is that God is at work to redeem a people for himself that would look like his son, Jesus Christ. That's really our main point today, that God is at work to redeem a people for himself that would look like his son, Jesus Christ. And in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, Peter gives his exhortation. And we will focus on these verses this morning. So let's read this passage. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So first, in verses 1 through 4, we see that God has given us the power for Christlikeness. Look at verse 1. Peter begins and says, To those who have attained a faith of equal standing with ours. And notice how this faith is obtained. It is obtained by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So right from the start of his letter, Peter makes clear that our faith, our salvation has been achieved only by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we must start there. Later, Peter is going to encourage us to, to work hard at our growth in Christlikeness. But before he gets there, he wants to make sure that we are clear about how we have received our salvation from God. And we refer to this as justification, but we need to define that. Justification is the declaration of God that a sinner is righteous. But how can a holy and righteous God justify sinful people? Well, God justifies us by covering us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There is nothing you or I can do to justify ourselves before God. Think about it. Is there anything you can do to cover all of your sin? Is there a single thing you can do to make up for any of your sin? There's nothing we can do to justify ourselves before a holy God. As Edwards said, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. But God has accomplished our salvation and justification by offering his own son. Jesus put on flesh and lived a holy and righteous life. 
he went to the cross bearing our sin and judgment and was sacrificed on our behalf. He bore the wrath of God for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. As Romans 5:19 says, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man, that's Jesus, his obedience the many will be made righteous. We who were once dead in our sin and trespasses have been made alive in Christ Jesus. And once we finally realize that we can do nothing to earn our salvation, we are able to place our faith in Christ alone. I'm reminded of the words of, of the great hymn, Rock of Ages. The, the hymnist writes this, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. So Peter begins this letter by reminding us that our salvation is a gift given by God and is accomplished by Christ's righteous sacrifice. And Peter doesn't stop there. In verses 2 through 4, Peter describes the goal or the result of our, salva- of our justification. Look at verses 2 through 4. He writes, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Did you notice the goal of our salvation here in verse 4? Peter says that the goal is that we would become partakers of the divine nature. So we have to ask, what does that mean? Well, Peter is referring to what we call glorification. Glorification is that entrance into God's presence and glory. And we see this in other parts of this letter and throughout the New Testament. In verse 11, Peter says that as we strive to grow in Christ-likeness, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we just read in chapter 3, verse 13, Peter looks forward to glorification and says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So glorification is the entrance into God's presence and glory. And when we enter into God's presence, we will behold the face of Jesus himself and we will become like him because we will see him as he is. So Romans eight twenty nine through 30 lays out this process for us. Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn from among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's important we don't miss this. God is at work in the life of every believer to conform us into the image of his son. Ever since the fall of creation in Genesis chapter 3, God has been at work to restore his image in this world. And he does this through justification and glorification. So one day we will enter the presence of our Savior and all of our sin will be removed. We will one day be partakers of the divine nature And Peter doesn't mean that we will become little gods. What he means is that one day all believers will share in the divine nature and that they will be morally perfected. All of our unrighteousness will be removed and we will no longer struggle against sin. 
When we behold the full glory of Jesus, we will be made perfectly righteous, no longer fighting against our sin. And that is our goal. That is our hope. That one day we won't have to struggle against sin and brokenness anymore. God will fully restore his image in us. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you live between justification and glorification. And I hate to make this a a sermon about terms, but it's important we get this. And we live in this state now that we call sanctification, which is really just a fancy word for being formed into the image of Christ. You see, at the moment of justification, our eyes are opened to the fact that we are sinful and Christ offers us his righteousness to us. And it's at that moment that God begins his work of forming us into the image of his son. God is at work to remove all of those things in our lives that don't look like Christ. And he's also at work in our lives to grow our character so that we would look more and more like Jesus. And notice what Peter writes in verse 3. He says that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So God has, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need in the Christian life, from justification and sanctification to glorification, is given by God. We lack nothing in Christ Jesus. And all of God's divine power for growth comes through the knowledge of Jesus. And Peter opened with this point in verse 2. He repeats it again here in verse 3. And he emphasizes it throughout his letter. The power we need for growth in Christlikeness comes through the knowledge of who Jesus is and his glory displayed in his life. This teaches us something so important. Our growth is not rooted in how we feel. Our growth is rooted in our thinking. You see, we do the things that we do because of what we believe. And we as humans are primarily motivated by happiness. So we pursue and do the things that we believe will make us happy. We go skiing because we believe it will make us happy. We go hiking because we believe it will make us happy and sweaty. And the same is true about sin. When we get angry, we are believing that something or someone is in our way of happiness. We grow impatient when other people ruin our happiness. And we pursue our sin when we believe the false promise of sin that we can somehow find happiness and satisfaction apart from God. And that is the point that Peter is making here. We will act on the promises we believe. If we believe the false promises of sin in this world, we will only live for the temporary things of this life. But the opposite is true as well. We will grow in Christ-likeness when we believe and trust the promises of God. And that's why P- Peter is writing this letter. He tells us that our growth is rooted in the precious and very great promises of God. And so we must set our minds on these promises. Like Paul writes in, in Colossians 3, 1-2, through 2, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. It's so easy to focus on the things of this world around us. But Peter encourages us to look past the temporary things of this earth and to remember that Christ will return. And it is in Christ that all of God's promises find their fulfillment. God has not promised us anything outside of the person of Christ. So we look forward to that day when Christ will return and will fulfill all of his promises to us. And this means then that we must remind ourselves of God's promises. We must read and search scripture for, uh, for these promises and remind each other about them. So Peter encourages us to look to the future consummation of all of God's promises in Jesus Christ. 
And Peter also encourages us to remember that as we grow in the knowledge of Christ, as we seek to transform our thinking, to set our minds on the things that are above, that God will work in us to transform us into the image of Christ. I love the way Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when he writes, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. See, Peter isn't showing us that we just need to control our behavior. We can't just muster up all these qualities that he lists later in this passage. Our thinking must first be transformed. And our thinking is transformed when we look at Christ and behold his glory. And our thinking is also transformed when we look to God's promises in Christ Jesus. So first, in verses 1 through 4, we see the power for Christ-likeness. And second, in verses 5 through 7, we see the pattern of Christ-likeness. And verse 5 begins with, For this very reason, make every effort. Peter is saying, Because God has given you everything you need for life and godliness, make every effort or strive with everything you have after these qualities that should mar- mark the life of a believer. I think sometimes we wrongly believe that some people are just spiritually gifted and growth comes easy to them. And if we're not careful, we can sometimes start to think that God's power may not just work in our lives. But God is never to blame for our lack of growth. I heard this illustration and I think it helps us understand the point. We often use the term a green thumb to refer to someone who is good at gardening. And we'll say things like, wow, that person has a green thumb because things thrive and grow under their care. But no one really has a green thumb. There's no magical fairy dust that just makes something, someone able to grow and keep plants alive. There's no shortcut to making things grow. No, someone with a green thumb is someone who is dedicated to learning about plants. They learn about what they need for their care and growth. They read books about plants, they talk to others about plants, and they carefully care for their plants. I still remember volunteering to house sit for my brother and he had all these plants and starts in his house and I was really nervous that I was going to kill all of his plants. But he had built an entire spreadsheet for me with their watering schedule and how to care for them. And I didn't kill any of his plants because he had carefully planned out for their care. And it's the same in the Christian life. There are no believers who have a spiritual green thumb. When we see people around us that are growing that are growing in Christ-likeness, it is because they are working hard to make use of the promises and power that God has given them in Christ Jesus. The Christian life requires hard work. And I think in an effort to protect the gospel and not preach works salvation, we sometimes downplay the effort that's required on our part to grow in Christ-likeness. Now don't misunderstand me. The work of justification, that declaration of God that a sinner is made righteous, is a monergistic work, meaning that is God's work alone. We are justified by the work of the triune God alone. Hopefully, I've made that clear. There's nothing we can do to justify ourselves. But sanctification is a synergistic work. And that means that God is at work in us and it requires our effort. And this is the difference between justification and sanctification. And here Peter is saying, because you have been justified by God, now make every effort to grow in your sanctification. Martin Lloyd-Jones uses the illustration of a farmer who's been given everything he needs to farm. He's been given land and a house. He's been given a house and a barn. He's been given a tractor and seed. He has everything he needs to be the farmer. Will the wheat just grow on its own? No, of course not. The farmer has to work with what he's been given. 
And if you know any farmers, you know that they work really hard with what they have. Otherwise, they won't be a farmer for very long. And it's the same in the Christian life. We have been given everything we need for life and godliness, but we must work with what God has given us to grow in Christ-likeness. God has promised to grow you because that's the purpose for which he has saved you. He is at work to conform you into the image of his Son. And here Peter lists these qualities that should characterize the believer. And admittedly, for the, time, uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to define each of these. I'll give that to you for homework. But notice this progression. These qualities are rooted in faith and they culminate in love. This love reflects the love of Christ that made Christ devoted to our well-being even in the face of great opposition. And Peter is telling us that our lives too should be characterized by the same type of love. So in verses 5 through 7, we see the pattern of Christ-likeness. And we see that those who grow in Christ-likeness are characterized by diligent work depending on all that God has promised. And third, we see the promise of Christ-likeness in verses 8 through 11. Let me read verses 8 and 9 to start. Peter writes, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So Peter says that we should expect to see these character traits in our lives as we strive to grow. And he also offers a warning that those who do not exhibit these qualities have lost sight of God's promises. Let me use an illustration. And I used this in a sermon years ago. I think it was like four years ago. But I think it illustrates the point so well. In 1952, Florence Chadwick attempted to swim from Catalina Island to the California coastline. Catalina Island is located about 21 miles off the California coastline. And the channel between the island uh, and the coast is known for its cold water, strong currents, and foggy conditions. And Florence was an accomplished long-distance swimmer. Prior, the, prior to this attempt, she had successfully swam across the English Channel on multiple occasions, becoming the first woman to sw- swim the channel in both directions. If anyone could accomplish this, it was her. On the day of her swim, Florence had a team that followed her in a boat, providing her with support and monitoring her progress. As she swam, the conditions proved to be incredibly challenging. Along with the cold water and strong currents, a thick fog settled in that challenged her endurance and mental strength. As she swam, the fog became so thick that she could hardly see the boats around her. At one point, she grew so exhausted she begged to be taken out of the water, but her crew urged her on, telling her that she was getting close to the shoreline. And with encouragement, she swam on for a time. But after 15 hours of relentless swimming, she finally reached a point where she felt she could go on no longer. She was exhausted, physically drained, and mentally fatigued, and couldn't make herself swim any further. So her crew pulled her out of the water onto a small boat, and there she learned she was less than a mile from the shoreline. And after the event, at a news conference, Florence said, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And I'm afraid that for many of us, the Christian life feels like this swim. We hear a sermon, we're convicted, we're encouraged, so we go home determined to strive hard after our growth. But you know what happens next. Later that week, the alarm goes off, and our minds are so full of the fog of another week. We have stresses of life, the news of the world, and temptation of sin. But we just heard a sermon about how we need to strive hard after our growth, so what happens? Our focus often turns inward. 
We begin to strive in our own effort with our eyes firmly fixed on ourselves and in so doing we lose sight of our ultimate goal. Instead of keeping our eyes fixed on Christ, we strive with everything we have only to lose heart in a couple days or even a couple hours. And this pattern uh, continues and we quickly realize we're not growing so we become discouraged and weary. Or for some, as our focus turns inward, we create our own list of rules and behaviors that we think will achieve the growth that God desires from us. As long as we can keep our list of rules, we think we're growing and we feel pretty good about ourselves. But instead of true growth, we begin to compare ourselves with others. And instead of growing in the grace of Christ, we grow in our ability to keep a list and do better than others around us. Our ability to keep our list leads to pride and blind spots in our lives because we're not looking to God's standard anymore. Instead, we're looking to ourselves and others to measure our growth. But whatever the tendency is in your own heart, the problem is always the same. Our gaze, which is meant to be fixed on Christ alone, turns elsewhere. The fog of sin clouds our vision, and we no longer see our goal. Some quit striving altogether, while others strive hard in the wrong direction. But these final verses of Peter's exhortation give us hope. Verse 8 begins by giving us the promise of Christ-likeness, and verse 9 gives us a warning of the danger of not growing. But tucked away in the warning of verse 9 is a remedy for the fog that hinders our growth. So let's begin by looking at verse 8. Verse 8 says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. And in our English version, this sounds like a, a conditional statement. But the original construction conveys an assumption that these qualities are present in the life of every believer. These qualities that Peter has described are not optional for the believer. Peter is saying that if you have been redeemed by God, you will look like Christ. And notice what Peter says about these qualities. He says that they are increasing. I think when we hear the, the word increasing, we tend to think about this slow, steady increase in our character. We hear that and we might say, well, I'm a little more patient than I was last year, so I, I think I'm doing all right. But increasing carries with it the idea of abundance. Other translations say, if these qualities are yours and abound. Think of a healthy tr- fruit tree with fruit that explodes off the branches like the head's pear trees that are constantly giving off pears and they're constantly giving them away to people. That's the idea that Peter has here. Just as fruit carries seed with it and multiplies, so should our lives be characterized by an abundance of growth. And that can be discouraging to hear, right? If we honestly assess our lives, we might see some growth, but we often don't see these qualities just bursting forth in our lives. As we assess our growth, we are often aware that there's still much work to do. And I think that's Peter's point. He wants his audience to keep pressing forward. He wants them to realize that they'll never arrive this side of glory. And why is that? Well, this side of glory, we will never look fully like Christ. We will always fight against our sin and our flesh. So Peter calls us to a holy dissatisfaction with our growth. He encourages us to keep working, to keep striving, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and his promises as we strive hard to grow in these qualities. And this holy dissatisfaction keeps us from pride. Even when we see growth in our lives, we know that there's still much work to do. And this holy dissatisfaction keeps us from looking down on others who might not be where we're at or who might not be striving like we are. Instead of comparing ourselves to others, we can help encourage those to keep striving, to keep their eyes fixed on Christ. 
Look back at verse 8. Peter continues and writes, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or to say it positively, if you have these qualities and they abound in your life, you will be effective and fruitful in your knowledge of the Lord. This is and always has been God's design for his people. And before Peter moves on to verse 9, he, he can't help but end verse 8 with a reminder that our effort is rooted in our knowledge of Christ. We can't just conjure this fruit on our own. As Jesus said in John 15, the branch that does not, bear, or does not abide in Christ cannot bear fruit. If God has saved us by his grace alone, why would we think we could possibly just uh, grow apart from the grace of God? In order to grow, we must always be connected to Christ's life. And that brings us to verse 9. Verse 9 shows us the danger of unfruitfulness or not growing in Christ-likeness. Peter writes, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter is saying that those who do not bear fruit have been blinded. They no longer have the motivation that they once had. The fog of this, this life has set in, and they are no longer motivated to keep striving against the current. In, Peter, in 2 Peter 2.20, Peter warns us that those who persist in their unseeing ways would be better off if they never knew God's grace. That is a serious and grave warning. Peter here describes those who have lost sight of the goal. They can't see what is in front of them anymore. They're so blind that they're consumed with the present moment and all of its worries. John Piper says this about the condition described in verse 9. The problem with the person who does not strive toward all the fruit of faith is that he is blind in two directions. When he looks to the future, it's all a haze, and the promises of God are swallowed up in a blur of worldly longings. And when he looks to the past, the forgiveness that made him so excited at first is well nigh forgotten, and all he sees is an empty prayer and a meaningless ritual of baptism. In other words, just as in verse 3, the power for godliness flows through the knowledge of God, so in verse 9, blindness to the past and future work of God blocks that power and leaves us limp in the water, drifting towards destruction. So Peter here presents a real warning against apostasy. Blindness that continues will lead to destruction. So how do we avoid this two-directional blindness? First, verse 9 tells us that those who are blind have forgotten that they were cleansed from their former sins. And this isn't a forgetfulness like you might forget your, where you place your keys. This describes a willful forgetfulness in their lives. In other words, the salvation that once meant so much to this pers person no longer bears any weight in their life. Their focus has shifted. Their goal is no longer the glory of God. They simply see themselves as the center of their world, and they strive hard after whatever they can gain in this life. So how do we guard against this? Well, if the condition is forgetting that they have been forgiven, the remedy is to remember that you've been cleansed from your sins. And here Peter is reminding his audience that they have been baptized with Christ. Now you might be wondering, how does our remembering our baptism help us grow in godliness? Well, we have to remember what our baptism represents. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul explains what baptism signifies in Romans 6, verses 3 through 4. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in, into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too might walk in newness of life. 
our baptism reminds us that we have died to our sinful flesh. We have died to our sinful, selfish desires, and we have been united with Christ in his death, and now we have been united with Christ in his resurrection. And why? So that we can walk in newness of life. We have been recreated. We have a new purpose, and we have new life through Christ Jesus. Because of this new life, we are called to live before God as his instruments for righteousness. And this is what we must remember. We, we must remember that we were dead in our sin and shame, but God being rich in mercy, while we were sinners, while we were still far off, enemies of God, God showed his love for us. And Christ died for us and set us free from our sin. And that is why we strive hard and work hard for our growth. Because God loves us and has rescued us from our, our sin. We don't work hard to try to make God happy with us. We strive hard after these qualities because God is already happy with us in Christ Jesus. And this is why God has given us the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Our baptism was a one-time occurrence that represents our justification in Christ. But the Lord's Supper is an ongoing reminder that Christ died for us and that it is through his death that we have new life. Sinclair Ferguson says this, The whole of the Christian life is centered on Jesus Christ. Like Paul, the contemporary Christian can say, to me, to live is Christ. But often in the Christian experience, we are tempted to look elsewhere for direction, example, counsel, and guidance. We lose sight of the fact that everything we need to live the Christian life is to be found exclusively in Christ. For this reason, when we begin thinking about spiritual growth, we must think first of all about Christ. The gospel is the root of all of our growth. And that is why Peter constantly reminds us that our growth is in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We must constantly work to remember the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every morning, every day, and remind each other about the glorious grace we've been shown in Christ Jesus. That is our remedy to blindness to God's past grace in our life. But this blindness also clouds our vision to the future hope we have in Christ. And this ties back to the precious and very great promises of God that Peter talked about earlier. It's the promises of God. Uh, it's the promises that God has made us partakers of his divine nature and will work in, us, uh, work in us to conform us into his image. And it's also the promise of Christ's second coming, where Christ will bring to completion all that God promised to us. It's the hope of future glorification, that one day we will put off this body of flesh and be made like Christ without all the hindrances of this life. But we have to work hard to keep these promises at the front of our mind because this life, with all of its legitimate concerns and sorrows, works to discourage us. Every day we are faced with so many things that cloud our vision to the shoreline of God's promises to us. And if we do not work to maintain our vision, we will lose heart and give up. And I love John Bunyan's portrayal of God's promises in Pilgrim's Progress. If you've read it, hopefully you remember it. The giant despair ca captures Christian and hopeful. He begins to torture them relentlessly, almost to the point of death. He even tries to convince these two pilgrims to just give up and kill themselves, because it would be better to give in and die than to be beaten by despair. And eventually, the giant threatens to pull them into pieces, and Christian is on the verge of losing hope. But then, he remembers that he has a key called promise that will open any door in Doubting Castle. So Christian pulls out the key, and he easily unlocks the first couple of doors. 
But then he gets to the iron gate and Bunyan writes, and forgive the old English, but that lock went damnable hard, yet the key did open it. Then they thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed. But that gate, as it opened, made such a cracking that it wakened giant despair, who hastily rising to pursue his prisoners, felt his limbs to fail, for his fits took him again so that he could by no means go after them. And I love this picture, because sometimes when we apply God's promises to our life, it opens the doors easily. It helps, and we feel that immediately. But other times we have to work with all of our might to get God's promises to move our stubborn hearts. And even in moving them, despair still rises up in our hearts, and we doubt. But God's promises will not fail in your life if only we will work to apply them to our lives. Because if, if we're honest, this life is hard. We shouldn't be discouraged when we find that growth in your life is slow and at, some time, and at times discouraging. Do not lose heart. Keep looking to the promises of God. And that's why in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, Paul writes, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being re- renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Do you see what Paul is saying? Even as this life works to destroy us and discourage us, our inward man can be renewed each day as we do not look at the temporary things that are right in front of us but to the future hope that we have in Christ. We look forward to our future glorification with Christ. But I think for many of us, future glorification may not be very motivating because we don't fully understand what it means. Like we talked about, future glorification means that one day we will be made like Christ without all of the hindrances of our flesh. And future glorification also carries with it the promise of reward for our obedience to God. And that's what Paul's writing about in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says that he doesn't lose heart even in the midst of affliction because he knows that his perseverance and suffering will bring an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs his present sufferings. Paul says that God will glorify us for our perseverance and obedience. And I don't know exactly what that will look like, but I do know this. Paul is saying that every act of obedience, no matter how small or insignificant, pleases God. That our striving to do what God has called us to do delights our Heavenly Father. I don't know if you noticed this, but all of the qualities that Peter listed listed here are needed in adverse circumstances. It's not difficult to be faithful on a sunny day when all is going well in life. We need faithfulness when everything around us is telling us to give up and throw in the towel. It's not difficult to be virtuous on a Sunday morning surrounded by fellow believers. We need virtue when we are tempted to give in to our sinful desires. We need true knowledge when doubt and despair begin to well up in our hearts. We need self-control when we are tempted to give in to our flesh. We need steadfastness when we are faced with sorrow and suffering. We need godliness when we are tempted to conform to this world's standards. And we need brotherly love when our brother is unlovely. And we need love for the lost when our hearts are tempted to be cold or indifferent to their condition apart from Christ. These qualities are not easy qualities to exhibit in our lives. It takes effort to produce this fruit. 
But when we remember that every act of obedience brings delight to God and an eternal reward, we can say with Paul, we do not lose heart. We can take heart because no act of obedience, no matter how small, goes unnoticed. And this is so helpful when we feel like we're alone and no one is watching, so why does it really matter if my character is, is in accordance with God's plan or my obedience is in accordance with his desires? Because God is watching, not as a wrathful God ready to smite you, but as a father who desires your growth and good and delights in every act of obedience. So we must fight this two-directional blindness and set our hope in Christ. Our hope is firmly rooted in the work of Jesus on the cross that justifies us before God. And our hope looks forward to the day when we will be glorified in heaven. So what must we do to be fruitful in our knowledge of Christ? We must make every effort. But how should we apply our effort? First, we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We must remember that we have been justified in Christ We have to remind ourselves that we have died to ourselves and we have been raised with Christ in newness of life. Because we have died to ourselves, we no longer live for ourselves. Piper says, if these qualities are not your earnest concern, then it is because you have shut your eyes to the beauty of God's promises and have forgotten the humble exhilaration of being forgiven. So remind yourself daily and hourly that you have been forgiven a great debt And now you have been given the opportunity to live a life to the glory of God. And second, keep your eyes fixed on Christ. When our eyes drift away from Jesus, we will grow discouraged or proud. Looking to Christ keeps us from pride as we see holiness that we cannot achieve apart from his grace. Looking to Christ keeps us from discouragement as we see Jesus, a man who suffered and was tempted in every respect as we are yet without sin. And when we look to Jesus, we see that we have a great high priest seated at the right hand of God. When we look to Jesus, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. So yes, we must strive. We must run, but we run looking unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So two months after Florence Chadwick failed to reach the California coastline, she attempted the swim a second time. And again, as she neared the shore, a dense fog set in. And once again, it looked like the physical and mental strain would be far too much. But she pressed on and eventually reached the shore. And afterwards, when asked, she said she kept a mental image of the shoreline in her mind the entire time she swam. We too must keep our goal in mind. If we want to faithfully persevere in this life, we must keep our eyes fixed on Christ, striving hard to grow in our knowledge of him. We have to know with certainty that there is greater joy to be experienced than all the weight we carry around with us in this life. We must trust the promises of God, knowing that there is great reward if we endure faithful to the end. So keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives, Lord. We thank you that you have brought us near to yourself through the mercy of your Son, through his righteousness. God, we ask simply that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. That as we go through this life, we experience good things and hard things, that our eyes would stay fixed on Christ, that we would not drift from him. Pray that we would also encourage one another in that, Lord. 
that you've given us a body of believers to help strive alongside of. And we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.